I don't know why, but uh, for some reason this week I've just been especially thinking about the kids and going back to school and and the teachers and everybody going back to school. And so this morning's lesson kind of had something to do with that. And tonight's lesson is going to have something to do with that as well. Uh, when you think about we have our uh, Joe. No, we're getting it. He's working on it. It vanished. What would you do, Chris? You vanished it. <laughs> well, today's lesson, tonight's lesson is about compromise. And, you know, we think about compromise and normally because we're in this setting, we're probably going to say that compromise is a bad thing. And especially since you see up there, it says no compromise. But, you know, we can't get along in life really without compromise. Whether it's in our physical families, there's got to be compromise. In a church family, there's got to be compromise. In a community, in government, there has to be compromise. And as I kind of look at our political situation right now in our country, one of the things that I notice that, that, that bothers me, lots of things, but one of the things that bothers me is the unwillingness to even listen to each other, much less compromise. And I know that there are certain things on which we should not compromise and cannot compromise. But we can't get along in this world without compromising. This country was founded on compromises. And when I go back and I look at history and the founding of this nation, and you go back and you really study, you begin to find out how much compromising there really was to get us to the point that we're at or that we were. There's a thing called the Great Compromise, which was very important to this country. After the uh, Revolutionary War, we tried the Articles of Confederation, which just weren't going to work. You know, it, it had no meat or teeth to it. And so they decided we had to come together and figure out a constitution and figure out what kind of government we were going to have. And so they wanted a representative government. And so there was a Virginia plan and the Virginia plan said that there ought to be, you know, a house, a legislative house based on population of the state. Well, wouldn't you know it that Virginia was probably the most populated state at the time. Then there was the New Jersey plan. The New Jersey plan said, whoa, wait a minute. That's not fair. All 13 of us, or however many there were by the time we were doing the Constitution, how, you know, all 13 of us ought to have equal representation. So each state ought to be represented equally, whether they have a huge population or a small population. And this battle kind of raged on and on, and it really became a point where, you know, was anything going to get done? And then finally there was the Great Compromise. Which said, okay, we will have a bicameral. Is that right? Is that right? Did I say that right? <laughs> Woo! Okay. In other words, we will have two houses. We will have the upper house, the Senate, that will be based on equality of states. Each state will get two senators. Then we will have the lower house, the House of Representatives, and it will be based on population. Well, doesn't that just make a whole lot of sense? I don't think that could happen today in our political climate. 
I don't think anything like that could ever happen. And yet, while compromise, I think, is a good and necessary thing in government and in society, when it comes to religion, and when it comes to our faith and obedience in God, there's no place for compromise. We cannot compromise what God has told us to do. You know, Pharaoh tried to compromise with Moses when Moses, you know, goes and says, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, well, you know, the men can go or then you can go for a couple of days, but you got to come back and try to compromise. Satan tried to compromise with Jesus and those initial temptations when Jesus was out on the mountain. The Jews and the Romans tried to compromise with the apostles early on. Okay, you can believe what you want to believe. Just don't do it so publicly. Don't be so vocal about it. Don't, don't do this. Don't do that. And try to compromise. We looked a couple weeks ago, however long ago it was, when we looked at Pilate. Pilate tried to compromise. He tried to compromise with the Jews. He had Jesus beaten, hoping that that would be good enough. He offered him up, you know, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And to his shock, they chose Barabbas. But he tried to compromise. Satan's, one of Satan's greatest tools is to get us to compromise. And so we have to be steadfast and we have to be sure. And so tonight we're going to look at Daniel as a person who would not compromise. In 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Judah He carried off the plunder from the temple as well as the leading young men of the prominent families. Now, if you remember several years before, the Assyrians had come and taken Samaria or the northern kingdom, Israel, captive. And the uh, the Assyrians, they the way they wanted to control the world was is they would take you captive And they would take part of your people and implant them in other places that they had taken captive. And then bring some of those people to your place. And the idea was that if you started mixing and mingling and marrying, then you'd lose your nationalistic pride. Which kind of is exactly what happened. But Nebuchadnezzar found a better way. He said, instead of doing that, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to bring the leading young men. I'm not going to leave them there in Judah. I'm going to bring them to Babylon. And I'm going to Babylonianize them. That probably is not a word. But it'll work. I'm going to make Babylonians out of them. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to read along. We're going to read chapter 1 of Daniel. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court's officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal families and the nobility. Young men, I don't know if we got anybody here who could qualify... For the program that Nebuchadnezzar is setting up. Young men without any physical defect. Handsome. Showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well informed. Quick to understand. 
and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So this was the elite of the elite. Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to go about amongst those Israelites and I want you to find the best of the best young men and I want you to bring them in. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord and my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men of your age? The king would then then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and they were to drink, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could also understand visions and dream dreams or, and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. What an amazing story. Especially when you realize that most biblical scholars put Daniel and I'm going to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because I know those names better than Hananiah, Mishael, and the Azariah. So we'll just go the other way. Especially when the most biblical scholars say that they were probably between 15 and 17 years old when this happened to them. Very young men, if you want to use the word men. Boys, essentially, when they were taken captive, away from their families, away from their home, away from everything that they knew. Now, what we see here is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is to get them to compromise. And we see from the actions of Nebuchadnezzar... Similarly, what Satan tries to do to us in our lives, what he tries to do to our young people, what he tries to do to us old people, it's all pretty much the same. And so tonight I want us to kind of look at this. 
So first of all, we're going to look at what Nebuchadnezzar did. And the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did is he isolated them. He took them out of their homeland, away from their parents, and away from their religious leaders, away from their religious teaching. His desire was not only to remove them from Judah, but to remove Judah from them. The hope that with new names, and there's an interesting thing here that I really hadn't known necessarily before, but if you look at Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all four of those names, Hebrew names, include some form of God in it, okay? I'm not into the Hebrew so much. I do know that L-E-L means God, so Daniel, and some of you may have it in your Bible, means something of God, okay? The others, I'm not 100% sure, but it's there. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar all have within them names of Babylonian gods. Nebuchadnezzar is not an idiot. He says, I'm going to give them new names with Babylonian gods. I'm going to instruct them in all kinds of Babylonian literature and all these different things, a new diet, a new education, a new culture. And he's thinking that that would make them forget their past and their heritage. Well, That sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? In law enforcement and in psychology and sociology, there's something called Stockholm Syndrome. And that is where somebody who is taken captive uh, or is kidnapped eventually is with that person or that group of people long enough that they begin to associate and sympathize with the people that took them captive. To the point that they may actually become a part of that group. We've heard stories about children who were, who were kidnapped at a very young age and they grew up with these, this person or these people and they don't even realize after a certain point that they're not their mother or father. Uh, and so this is kind of what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do with these kids. Is kind of present a stock. You know, you're not Judah, Judahites. You're not Jews anymore. You're not Israelites. You're not Hebrews. You're Babylonians now. Satan attempts to do the same with us as well. He tries to pressure us as much as he can to conform to the world around us. There is a sense in which when we become a Christian, We are no longer a part of the world around us. We've talked about this. How many verses do we know in the New Testament talked about the idea that we're foreigners, we're strangers, we're pilgrims. We're no longer part of this world. But this world and Satan is doing its very best to isolate us. And we can isolate ourselves. We can isolate ourselves from God's people. We can isolate ourselves from God's word. But Satan is trying to do that as well. To make us feel at home here. And comfortable in this world. So that we'll forget our heritage and our destiny. So he isolated them. Second thing he did is he tried to indoctrinate them. Three years of intense language and cultural studies. 
You know, this isn't like me trying to learn Portuguese. You know, I've tried to learn Portuguese ever since the first time I went to Fortaleza. And what I have found out is that I never learn hardly more than what I learned the first time. Every two years when we start to go back to Brazil, I say, I'm going to learn more Portuguese. And pretty much all I do is end up reviewing what I already knew. Why? Because you people don't talk to me in Portuguese. Jude tries, now that she's here. Mark tries. Barbara and Deborah try. I tried to speak Portuguese to Barbara the other day and totally messed it up. I asked her how her daughter was. I meant to say, how's your sister? But I said, how's your daughter? Or where is your daughter or something? I can't even remember. See, because we're not immersed in it. Mark picked it up so quickly because he went down and was living amongst them. And under, you know, and, and picked it up. And so here, I'm sure they probably weren't allowed to speak Hebrew. They were learning the, the, the Babylonian language. They were learning the Babylonian literature. They were learning Babylonian culture. They were learning Babylonian food. They were learning Babylonian everything. It was just inundated with this indoctrination of Babylonianism. I got that written down. I'm sure spell check said no, but I spelled it anyway. And again, remember, at such an impressionable age, Nebuchadnezzar knew what he was doing. Satan works hard to indoctrinate us as well. Humanistic teachings and philosophies threaten our faith and our belief, and especially the faith and beliefs of our children. You know, what the world is trying to teach our children is so far afield from what God wants them to be taught. Now, I got to move into kind of an assumption area, okay? We know absolutely nothing about Daniel's parents. We know absolutely nothing about the parents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I assume something. They must have done a pretty good job teaching their children. They must have brought them up right. They must have taught them about faith. They must have taught them about courage. They must have taught them about standing up for what's right. Because where else would they have gotten it? Parents, our children, grandchildren need to hear that it is important to stand up for what God says is right. We need to be teaching them that over and over again. Because we have to be preparing them for what the world is trying to indoctrinate them with. If we don't give them, you know, the battle belongs to the Lord and heavenly armor and all of that. All of that's fine if we give it to them and teach them how to use it. I think that was my most important job as a parent. I think it's my most important job as a grandparent. And I've always thought that that was my most important job as a youth minister, teaching young people, is to prepare them. So that they can refute what the world is saying and telling them. 
inoculation is the cure for indoctrination. That makes sense. And so we inoculate our children by teaching them and giving them a solid foundation of faith that will help them in survive, to survive in the world that tries to get them to conform to the world's belief. Notice though, that Daniel did not refuse the education. He didn't refuse the education that the king was giving him. Paul was very familiar with the Roman literature of his day. There's nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with even studying other religions and what other people believe and other thoughts. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we make sure that we have a solid foundation. And we understand what God is telling us and has told us. Third thing besides isolating them and indoctrinating them, he tried to make them compromise. Which is kind of the whole thing. But he put them in a place of importance. A situation that would have made them feel the pressure to compromise. Now imagine. Again. You're 15, 16, 17 years old. You've been plucked from your home. You've been taken thousands of miles away to a foreign country. This country has annihilated essentially your country. And now the king has said... I'm going to make you special. I'm going to give you the best food. I'm going to give you the best education. Would there not be a temptation to compromise? I don't know what happened to the others that were brought from Judah. That didn't make the cut. My guess is that they were put into servitude. They were made slaves. So would it not be kind of easy to compromise? Because I don't want to go be a slave. I kind of like this. You know, if I got to be over here in Babylonia, I like, you know, this is, this is, this is the way I want to do it. I don't want to be a slave over there in somebody's house or whatever. And so he set them up to compromise. He made the compromise seem incidental, even an honor. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar did not know the Jewish dietary laws when he gave them the food? I believe he did. Nebuchadnezzar was very familiar with the Jews and with Judah. He'd been down there several times to take them captive and do... There is no doubt in my mind that Nebuchadnezzar knew what the Jewish dietary laws were, and he knew that the food that he was giving them contradicted that. But you see, doesn't, doesn't food seem like just a little thing? Just an incidental thing? I mean, yeah, it says we're not supposed to eat pork, but that's back there in Judah, you know? Where the priests are and everybody. We're, we're here in Babylon. We're in the king's palace. Eating a pork chop's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. But you see, I think Nebuchadnezzar knows if he can get them to compromise on a little thing, then it won't be long till he's able to get them to compromise on the big thing. 
And you see, the world understands that too. Satan understands that too. You see, if Satan can get us to compromise one time on something little, then he can hold that over us. Well, you compromised on this. Why don't you go ahead and compromise on this? If you're in a work situation and your boss wants you to compromise and do something that's a little unethical, And because you want the raise or because you want the job or because you don't want to starve or whatever the case may be, you decide to go ahead and compromise on that a little bit. Where's going to be your foundation to say no the next time? Because he knows you've already compromised once. You might as well compromise again. If they compromised on the food then it wouldn't have been long when they were compromising on worship and idol worship and and all the other things that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to get them to do. Nebuchadnezzar knew if he could get them on a simple thing early, then later a big thing would be easier. Satan works us in the same way, leads us into small compromises that end up being big ones. There was also added pressure, and again, this is an assumption, Do you think that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the only four Hebrews that were brought into that program? I doubt it. I can't prove it, but I doubt it. If not, there were certainly young men from others of the countries that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered that were a part of that. How hard is it not to compromise when those who ought to be believing and thinking and acting like you are compromised? Isn't that the hardest thing as a Christian? Sometimes. I know when I, as a parent... That was the hardest thing for me to get over as a parent. If my daughter, one of my daughters came in and said, I want to do this. And if it was just the people of the world doing that, it was easy to say, well, no, you know, you can't do that. That's not what God wants, you know, and the worldly people, you know, and we're different. We're Christians. But how hard is it when they come and say, but. So-and-so, parents, let them do it. And they're Christians too. All of a sudden, the pressure to compromise becomes greater. And my guess is there were Jews among that group of young men who ate that food and drank that wine and compromised. And so we want to make sure that not only do we not compromise, but that we stand up so that others can be strengthened by our resolve and our decisions, that we don't lead others astray. And fourthly, he tried to confuse them. Imagine again being 15 years old and all this happening to you. It had to be confusing. And I think that was exactly Nebuchadnezzar's plan, to break them down and rebuild them as Babylonians. Without a solid foundation, Satan can confuse us as well. 
But through all of this, Daniel stood his ground. He refused to allow the pressure from the outside to come between him and obedience and service to God. How? Well, first of all, he was decisive. Key verses in verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He made a decision and was going to stick to it no matter what the consequences. One of the best ways to protect ourselves against Satan and temptation and all of Satan's wiles and darts and all those things that the Bible talks about is to firmly resolve those things that we know God has said we ought to do and those things we know God has said not to do. Waiting until we get in the middle of temptation to try to figure out what we ought to do is not the time to try to be decisive or make a decision. When I was teaching the young people, we were doing our little dating class. And, uh, you know, we, we had one of the one of the things was, you know, set your standards early. Set your standards early about what you will do and what you won't do. And what I told them was, is because if you haven't done that, in the back seat of the car on County Road 4904 at midnight, ain't the time to be trying to decide what's right and wrong. Because you ain't thinking straight at that point. You decide ahead of time. Well, the same is true not just in dating or sexuality. The same is true as anything in our lives. Know what God wants from us. Be decisive about it. Be resolved to worship and service to God. Just like Joshua said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We know a little later that there's going to come this situation where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a temptation. Nebuchadnezzar builds a great idol. And he wants everybody to bow down. And the, it's, I love that, you know, when the flutes and the zithers and the lyres and all those things play, then everybody bows down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not. Do you think they were kind of wishy-washy right up to that point? Do you think they kind of were wondering, I don't know. I think they had resolved long before that actual moment. We are not going to bow down to that idol. He was decisive. Daniel was also bold. What a tremendous amount of courage that he displayed. He offered a solution that didn't threaten his superior. Notice the way Daniel went about this. He was not mean-spirited. He was not disrespectful. He honored the king and he honored the person that was over him that was under the king. And he said, look, 10 days. Just give us 10 days. Which leads to the third thing. He had expectations. Daniel knew that God would take care of him. 
He knew that even though he was in a foreign land, even though he was far away from mom and daddy and the priests and the temple and all of that, he had faith that God would take care of him. And again, that shows up, especially a little later, when the three men, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the idol, and they're getting ready to be thrown into the furnace. You've heard, you know, this is one of my favorite statements in all the Bible. As they're getting ready to be thrown in the furnace, they say, we will not bow down to your idol. We know that our God will rescue us. That's not the cool part. Well, that's cool, but it's not the most cool part. It's the next statement. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. We know, we believe that God will protect us, that God is going to take care of us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to that idol. There may be times in our life when we don't see any way out. God says he'll protect us. God will be there. And even if he doesn't, he's provided us the ultimate protection and the ultimate safety and the ultimate Shelter. What a wonderful lesson to be learned. The world is attempting to do to us exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel and his friends. Trying to mold us, trying to isolate us, try to indoctrinate us into the world's thought and the world's belief. It's on the television, it's in the music, it's in, it's, it's, it's in the textbooks, it's, it's everywhere. And so we have to protect ourselves and our children and teach them and build within them a foundation so that when those temptations come, we will not compromise. And we will resolve to do what is right. Young people, as y'all head off to school, resolve to do what's right. Don't compromise. Old people. That's everybody else. Wherever you go this week, resolve not to compromise. That's what God wants from us. And we learned that from a very young man and his companions. If you're here tonight and there's some way we can help or encourage you, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service. 
Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.